electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deidre Bosa. John is off delivering the commencement address at his alma mater this weekend. Congrats to him. Today, a pretty significant intraday swing. Stocks have turned lower, and we're bargain hunting for some tech names, these small and mid-cap names to target, and what to watch within software. Then, what's wrong with Apple? Stocks having its worst month since 2020. We'll give you some bull and bear cases this hour. Later on, a big beat and a surge for Palo Alto Networks ahead of our CEO interview Monday. Why cloud and cybersecurity stocks may be, quote, too cheap to ignore, Dee. And happy Friday, Carl. It has been quite the week. We will kick off today's feed with some opportunities within tech. CNBC did a screen of relative cheapness on a number of different metrics. Dom Chu joins us with that screen. Dom, what are the names you got? All right, so a multi-factor screen, if you will. Our analyst team over at CNBC on the market side of things wanted to find a relative value, kind of more deep value hunting type at least stock picking screen. So here's what they came up with. First of all, if you look at the S&P 500 overall, not just the NASDAQ 100, but the S&P, a broader measure, you've got those S&P components, a forward price to earnings ratio from a valuation basis of each of those stocks that is now below their five-year average forward PE. So it's trading each component at a discount to where it has on average for the past five years. The stock also has to have declined by at least 20% from its recent highs. Expected earnings growth of 20%, so still a decently good profit-generating business, trading at a discount and a discount valuation. And then at least half of the analysts who cover that stock say that it's a buyer equivalent rating. A lot of different factors, but a number of stocks pass the test. And we're going to focus on some of the tech names right now. Maybe no surprise, that when it comes to value and profit growth and everything else with regard to kind of the overall pullback we've seen, semiconductor stocks, many of them made that list. Advanced Micro Devices, AMD, is now trading at a 61% discount to where it normally does on a forward price-to-earnings basis over the last five years. Qualcomm is 38% below its valuation. Micron, 35. Western Digital, 28% discount. And NVIDIA also trading at a 28% discount. So when it comes to value hunting in technology, guys, it comes down to whether or not some of these names have been punished unduly and maybe still have profit potential. Carl, those are some of the names that we're talking about, many of them in semiconductors. Yeah, Dom, it's a, it's a good spotlight. And I think we're hearing a little bit more of this over the last day or so. Sort of first in, first out. Some of the names that have been beaten down the most. It's interesting. I'm looking at Chinese stocks today. And they've done or held up relatively well this week. they got to be part of that list as well, at least in terms of how far they've dropped. And now some of those macro factors fitting in, like Beijing potentially, uh, easing up on regulations, some COVID restrictions eased as well. 
So, so if you look, at, I'm sure if you looked at the Nasdaq 100, where some of these U.S. listed Chinese tech companies trade, they might meet some of that criteria as well. You'd have to look at some of the profit growth potential there, especially in light of 10 cents results that were somewhat disappointing with regard to its growth trajectory. But I would also point out that if you look at some of these bigger names outside of technology, I mean, it's brand names that have been punished right on that list outside of technology, guys. Disney is on that list. Chipotle is on that list. The top of that list is a couple of home builders in Pulte and D.R. Horton. So, you know, when it comes to the S&P 500, obviously not just tech, but tech is certainly a big part of that discount story, guys. Yeah, some of the valuations on the home builders and retail this week, Dom, have really uh, been dramatic. Uh, thanks for that, uh, Dominic Chu. Our next guest has been buying Meta amid this volatility, making it his portfolio's largest tech holding, saying he's also looking to pick up some more Apple if the stock falls further. Joining us this morning is Wedgwood Partners CIO, David Rolf. David, great to have you to start the hour. Appreciate it. Hey, Carl. How you doing? Uh, what's the rationale behind the Meta buy? Well, again, we think this business model is very durable. It's certainly been through some tough times. Um, the stock's been just slaughtered. And I think at the valuation down here, if you're a bear on the stock, I think you have to uh, really make a case that the uh, business model has been disrupted. It can't grow. Uh, that these share buybacks, large share buybacks down at these valuations, which are at free cash flow uh, uh, yields that are very accretive, you have to you have to take apart all of those uh, elements of the story, at least in our minds, uh, not to own uh, Meta. And uh, again, as you mentioned, we recently bought it. We've suffered through it, and it's now our largest holding. Right. Are you more interested in the long-term play of of Metaverse and Reality Labs, or is it more a function of if we are going into a dramatic slowdown that? advertising the way it's targeted at Meta is something that corporates are going to try to spend as much as they can. Yeah, that's certainly the, the number one element of our bullish stance. Everything else on that you had mentioned, that's on the come. Uh, hopefully they don't spend too much on that. But uh, um, I mean, it's the best one of the best advertising platforms out there. And as, as you mentioned, as advertisers rationalize their spend, I doubt that they're going to cut too much from uh, from Meta. And even, uh, and even uh, Alphabet, yeah. which we also own. Yeah, we're looking, David, at a list of your top holdings. You've got Meta first, Alphabet second. And I guess what you're laying out right now is you like the advertising story. But with increasing worries about that macro picture, um, the likelihood of heading into a recession, ad budgets, marketing, that's typically the first thing that companies cut. Um, do you like these because they're better insulated from those forces or because you think that maybe the macro picture isn't going to be that bad? Perhaps a little of both. Again, certainly if, if, if we do head into a significant recession, if the Fed breaks something as they enter uh, uh, quantitative tightening, you know, they're going to get hit on those budgets. The good news is, is that these stocks are trading at PEs of 30 or 35 or 40. And so, uh, again, when we, we, when we consider the risk reward for each of these companies, we like what we see. And therefore, there are two largest holdings. Yeah, so David, we've been talking a lot about the mega caps. What about some of the smaller, more speculative growth stocks? Uh, Dom Chu was just talking about this that have sold off so much and might represent some value here. Are you fishing into some of those names yet? We, we pretty much avoid stocks that don't generate earnings. Interestingly enough, in your, in, in your previous segment, one of our uh, larger holdings is Taiwan Semi. It's mm -hmm. not part of the S&P 500 or the, or the uh, NASDAQ 100. But as he went through that screening, that stock would probably qualify as well. So we're 
We're big fans of the semiconductor space. Our favorite is uh, Taiwan Semi. You don't see it in a lot of growth portfolios. It's not in a lot of indices and ETFs, but without TSM, the likes of AMD and NVIDIA and Apple, I mean, the world revolves around at the very high end TSM. Uh, we think it's probably one of the most powerful under-owned tech stocks um, in the space. David, on Apple, uh, you know, a lot of people talked about it trying to defend 150, uh, then defend 140. I think here this morning at 137 is roughly the 100-week moving average, which I know B of A said was some critical support because the 200-week moving average is 97. How cheap do you think it needs to get before you get more interested? Well, if, well I'll tell you what, Carl, you've seen it time and time again over the past couple of weeks. If a company reports earnings that are even a questionable, a slightness, it's sell and ask questions later. So uh, all stocks are in that penalty box right now, given the environment. Um, the stock has been hit pretty hard this year, but over the last year, it's still hung in there. It's, hang, it's hung in there pretty well. Um, it's always been a very large holding for us. Um, I'd like for it to get hit. I, I hope they have a chance to buy more stock at, at lower levels. And so this is the time that, you know, we, we've owned Apple continuously since 2005. We like to root for lower prices so we can increase our weightings. And so uh, we wouldn't mind the stock to get hit a little bit further in here. But uh, other stocks like Meta, we've added to PayPal. They've been crushed. So Apple just hasn't been hit as hard yet. But uh, if it does, uh, it'll, it'll cross the plate and it'll be a fatter pitch for us. Yeah, it does feel like whether it's Apple or Tesla, for example, today, 666, a lot of it's pinned around what Q2 is going to look like vis-a-vis -vis China, right? And, and whether right. or not the market can get its arms around what would be obviously a, a, a disappointment within the quarter. Who knows what else comes? Well, certainly if we get a really bad iPhone number um, out of China, that's going to dent the bull case. Anything negative on the product side out of China is going to, is going to hurt Apple. So, I mean, obviously our antenna are focused on that. But uh, no doubt about it, with, with a lot of tech companies, China is a significant wild card. And um, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. David, as we've been talking just in the first few minutes of the show, uh, stocks have turned lower. The Nasdaq is now down eight-tenths of a percent. As we talk about that China question mark, Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins brought up the idea yesterday on our air that once it does open, we don't even know when that is, there's going to be a lot of congestion. The airways, the ports are going to be filled again. So do you think that the market has this priced in, that there's going to be another leg to this, and that could be a ton of disruption once China does open back up? Uh, probably not. I mean, the supply chain, you know, you look at you look, look, look at the look at the uh, traffic jam already in, in Shanghai. Can you imagine what it's going to be like if it opens up? So, mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to have to cycle through like we did about a year ago, all of the stories about supply chain disruptions coming out of China. And um, it's hard to make the case it gets better anytime soon. It's a mess. That's exactly what it is, uh, David. Appreciate the candor, as always, with the Dow now down 2.30 on this, uh, on this Friday. We'll see you soon. David Rolfe. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Deidre. 
And certainly China plays into the chip story. Dom also talked about it at the top of the show, perhaps an opportunity. Demand for chips remains high, but those companies continue to face headwinds, take shares of applied materials. The stock is lower by about 4.5% after missing top and bottom line estimates for the quarter, issuing a weaker forecast than expected, citing supply chain issues amplified by COVID lockdowns in China, what we were just talking about. Here with his outlook for the space, Bernstein Senior Semis analyst Stacey Rascon. Stacey, it's great to have you today. I know you love the secular story, as do many, but those short-term headwinds, what will investors have to endure here, or should they be getting in now because of that long-term story? Uh, and so, look, we're at that point of the cycle now where investors are getting very nervous. There's been this kind of peak cycle versus stronger for longer debate going on. I'd say from a fundamental standpoint, the stronger for longer has been right. It's already lasted longer, though it's starting to show some cracks. But from a sentiment standpoint, I'd say people are very firmly in the peak cycle camp. And, and we've been seeing it, obviously, like multiples have just been collapsing um, uh, through the year. Now, something that may be a little like mildly encouraging, um, if you look at the degree of multiple compression that we've seen, multiples have come down by a third. You went from about 21 times in the beginning of the year to about 14 times. And if you look over the last, like, I don't know, eight or 10 cycles of the last 10 or 15 years, that's about the degree of multiple compression that you typically get as, as things are going into this period. So that that's good. At the same time, however, we have not seen any earnings revisions, and that's where I think investors are looking for now. They, they, they actually are very hesitant, broadly, to step in front of most of these companies without actually seeing estimates come down. Um, we're at that point of the cycle. Isn't, um, yeah. Isn't it kind of wild that we haven't seen earnings revisions yet? I mean, AMAT last night talked about all of these issues in China. It was one of the later companies to report in the earnings season. We saw those warnings from Cisco as well. Why, why haven't they come down yet? Why are so now, well, the now they yet? are starting to come down, but it's not demand related. It, it is supply chain, right? So for, just to look at AMAT and the semicaps, for example, this is actually the third quarter in a row that, that AMAT and, and most of their peers have been having issues. They've been having problems with the supply chain. Perversely, the semiconductor capital equipment players have not been able to get semiconductors in the wake of all the shortages um, in order to be able to, to build the tools and to ship the tools. And so it's been causing problems for a few quarters. Unfortunately for applied materials, it looks like things, those kind of issues were starting to get better for them, but then the lockdowns happened in April. And so this is oh. something new. Um, not a lot to do about it. What, what could you do, right? And we're, we're, we're hearing different things from different semiconductor companies, especially on the impact of China and, and the lockdowns. Um, it really depends on your China exposure. It depends on how much uh, critical exposure you have specifically to the Shanghai region. <laughs> Texas Instruments, for example, took a haircut. Um, some others have said it's not much of an issue. AMAT's getting hit, for sure. Yeah, that was. I thought that was fascinating, Stacey, where they said they reversed some supply chain challenges in February and March and then it went back in reverse in April. Between them and Cisco this week, this notion, you know, we have this notion that uh, lockdowns being lifted uh, will create much better conditions. But Cisco's point is, well, everybody's going to rush to the bar. And that in itself, whether it's ports in Shanghai or eventually ports in L.A., are going to keep these things around longer than we think. You don't know. I mean, frankly, it, it's already lasted longer than I think people would have thought. And it's funny, every time something starts to get fixed, something else pops up. It's like whack-a-mole, right? And, and, and this is actually part of the issue. Most of the companies that are even, even seeing impacts, they're kind of suggesting they're guiding like it's going to get better. And eventually, I guess it has to. But I mean, we've had like, I don't know, two years now where new stuff has been popping up all the time. And so I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> like, as, as we go, <laughs> is something like more constraints? Will it be, you know, ports? Like, who, who knows? I, I don't know. But 
I'm amazed things have been, frankly, as resilient as they have been just in the wake of these kinds of disruptions. I mean, it's not surprising right. that things are, are cracking in some sense. Well, which, which makes me curious, as someone who covers an industry that is so notoriously cyclical, I mean, how much of past cycles experience is feeding your, your knowledge and your worldview right now? Yeah, look, every cycle is different, right? And, and there's a couple of different flavors. You can get supply cycles, you can get inventory cycles. This has been a major cycle. And to be fair, we've never had a cycle like this kicked off by a global catastrophe before. So this is cycle is kind of unique in the sense that it was sort of hitting every almost every single end market and almost every single geography simultaneously, certainly over the last like year or two, right? Um, I don't think we've ever seen supply chain disruptions of this magnitude. We, we've seen individual cases. You know, we had the, um, the, the, the tsunami back in 2011. We had the Thai floods that like inundated the hard drive plants in, in, in Thailand, for example. So we've had some point examples of these things that the, the industry over time has, has managed, but we've never seen anything like this before. So it's in, in some sense, we're in uncharted territory, but every cycle, like I said, they, they kind of rhyme, but every cycle is different. This, yeah. but this, one's, this one's major and unusual. And I know that we've been focusing on the supply side of this. Um, AMAT, other semiconductor companies have really been adamant that demand is intact. But do you think, Stacey, there's any reason to question that going forward, especially as the macro backdrop worsens? Yeah, so we'll see. So actually, there are some signs of demand weakening, especially in consumer-focused areas. So smartphones. Smartphones have been death. And by the way, any stock that touches a smartphone has been death because smartphones, smartphones, especially in China, have been very bad. Um, PCs, PCs have, were incredibly strong in the wake of COVID and, and those are starting to roll over. TVs, you know, guys like Target reported, mm -hmm. you know, obviously the, the, the retail like industry has been an apocalypse, right? Um, and Target was talking about, uh, you know, weak, weak TV sales, for example. So anything consumer focused has been weak. Um, enterprise focus, data center, those kinds of things have actually been quite strong and they've been holding up. Um, automotive has, has obviously, we've had shortages in production constraints, but, but demand is in, in everything has been strong. Industrial has been strong so far. So those are okay. But yeah, some cracks, at least on the consumer side, we've seen. Yeah. Um, death and apocalypse, Stacey. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't put it mildly. Thanks for your insights, Stacey Raskin. Oh, you bet. Talk to you Anytime. Meantime, the market weakening through the morning. All three major indices now in the red. Uh, we've seen a about a 600-point swing in the Dow from the highs, now down 270. Palo Alto, though, hanging in there. We're going to get more on that as Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. You can see Palo Alto at the top of that screen. Gets get a gut check on it as shares pop following strong results. Frank Holland joins us to break down some of those numbers. Hey, Frank. 
Hey there, Carl. Uh, Palo Alto having its best day since hitting its all-time high back in April after beats on the top and the bottom line. Strong guidance and CEO Nikesh Arora really laying out the opportunities for the company created by the cyber threat related to the Ukraine war. We have deployed protection for over 3,400 new indicators of attack that defend organizations from disruptive and destructive Russian cyber attacks. As you might expect, we're seeing heightened interest from commercial and government customers in Europe Really a strong quarter all around. Billings, money actually collected from customers. That was up 40%. Aurora also said the company was able to mitigate supply chain issues and have product when many of their competitors did not. Very different story than we heard from Cisco just the day before. The CFO also added the company aims to reach the rule of 40, combined free cash flow margin and revenue growth by next quarter. This quarter, that number just over 54. The results giving a real boost to the entire cybersecurity sector, especially those companies specializing in zero trust architecture. You mentioned what cyber stocks are too cheap to ignore. Okta and Zscale are both more than 60% off their high. Back over to you. Uh Frank, I really found his comments on the labor market fascinating. Aurora said that, you know, the company's employees had been leaving to join startups six months ago, right. especially because it is located here in the Bay Area. But he said, no more. That has changed. Now they're kind of asking, wait, do I really want to make that move? What do you think is behind that? Is it sort of security companies having an easier time? The sell-off in the public and private markets of newer growth companies? It's such a fascinating dynamic. Yeah, you know, I, I just think the entire sector when it comes to tech and cloud is really kind of in flux right now. I was actually speaking to a PE firm. They said there's a lot of companies that are reaching a moment of what he called capitulation, is that they're going to have to accept that their companies are not as valuable as they once mm. were, and they can't spend as much money as they once did. So that may also be slowing some of the moves from uh, employees from going from publicly traded companies that are generally more stable to private companies that may be in some kind of flux where they may need an injection of private equity funds or may get bought out altogether. Hmm. Capitulation. That's an interesting way of putting it. We're going to talk more about this later on in the show. Frank, thank you so much. And we every day almost we do again have news about Elon Musk. Uh, this time Business Insider detailing an allegation of sexual assault against the billionaire founder of Tesla and SpaceX. Julia Borston joins us with more on that story. Julia. Well, Deirdre, Elon Musk responding on Twitter to allegations of sexual misconduct. A reported business insider claims that Musk SpaceX paid $250,000 in severance in 2018 to a flight attendant who accused him of sexual misconduct. CNBC has reached out to SpaceX for comment but has not received any response. Musk responding on Twitter saying, quote, no, it was clear that their only goal was a hit piece to interfere with the Twitter acquisition. The story was written before they even talked to me. Also tweeting, quote, they, begin they began brewing attacks of all kind as soon as the Twitter acquisition was announced. In my 30-year career, including the entire Me Too era, there's nothing to report. But as soon as I say I intend to restore free speech to Twitter and vote Republican, suddenly there is. Musk also calling the, quote, wild accusations saying they are utterly untrue. Now, Twitter had no comment on the allegations, but this isn't the first time that issues of harassment have been raised with respect to Musk's companies. Just this past December, six women each filed separate lawsuits against Tesla, alleging the electric vehicle company fostered a culture of sexual harassment. Some of the women alleging that they were removed from their workstations after reporting this behavior. However, Musk was not implicated 
personally in those allegations. Now, as to whether all of this impacts Musk's Twitter takeover offer, Truist analyst Yusuf Squality telling us that this is all, quote, likely to add yet more distraction to an already messy situation with Twitter. D. Yeah, distraction on top of distraction on top of distraction. He wants us to be called uh, Elongate, right, Julia? Thank you very much for laying out those details. We're going to stick with Musk. Tesla losing its place as the top holding in Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, taking the top spot. That would be Roku. You see it on your board there. Kathy Wood's been picking up shares all year. The streamer now making up about 8.4% of the fund, worth more than $716 million. She is not alone. 79% of analysts have a buy on the stock with an average target of around $161 for Roku. That is Tesla, meantime, is still the fund's number two holding, falling more than 35% on the year, helping drag ARC down around 55% in 2022. Uh, Carl, we do follow her holdings very closely. It has been a rough year, but we talk about this often, still seeing a decent amount of inflows. Uh, as for ARC, yeah, absolutely. That's one interesting part of it. As for Tesla, I think it was Jonas from Morgan Stanley yesterday, D, that asked whether or not first-time Tesla owners would enter the arena at 500. He, that wasn't his forecast, but it was his question, especially if we do get a material miss on deliveries because of China uh, in Q2. Tesla now 662. We'll take you back to last August. Uh, we'll take a break here. One green spot in tech this week is fintech. A firm is up almost 70 percent since May 12. You got Names like Robinhood and NerdWallet not far behind. That said, all three names, of course, still 70% or more off their highs of the year. Talk about some more opportunities in tech when we continue. Dow down 240. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Half past the hour and uh, two hours into today's trade. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa. NASDAQ is lower and hovering down almost 1%, losing all of the gains of the morning. An argument to buy growth and the more speculative areas of the market in a moment. But first, let's get a news update with our Seema Modi. Hey, Seema. Carl, good morning. Shares of Ross stores are heading to their biggest one-day percentage plunge since 1993 and a two-year low with a loss of around 22% today. It's the latest retailer to warn that rising prices are slamming consumer demand for discretionary products. 
Take a look at Deere down 12%. Session low sales for its most recent quarter came in below estimates as farmers experience higher input costs due to uh, higher fertilizer prices. Supply chain issues have resulted in partially completed machines. And Foot Locker is up around 2%, but well off its morning high. Its profits top forecasts, and it expects to hit the top end of its sales and profit outlook for the year. Deidre, back to you. Seema, thank you so much. And a pretty large intraday swing today, as we've been talking about. The Dow has swung 500 points, peaked to trough. Let's get a look at what is leading these moves. Christina, interesting to see what's working and what isn't. In tech today, some of the more speculative names getting a big mega caps mixed. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get into that. And it's also the Nasdaq. Just within your hour, we are seeing a swing. It was in positive territory and now falling almost 1%. The exchange is also still almost 30% off. It's 52-week high. The stock's having the biggest point impact on the downside. That would be Tesla, NVIDIA, Ross stores, and Costco. It's really about the retail trade today, and that's what's dragging the Nasdaq. Chinese tech is poised for a weekly gain and still trying to hang on to those gains for the last four weeks. JD.com is up uh, just about almost 3%, and then you have IQ up Look at that, over 44%, and Pinduoduo up almost 11% on the week. And there's a slew of beaten-down fintech names having somewhat of a positive week. I had to pull one down because it actually went into the red. That was a lemonade. But you can see Nerd Wallet and a firm still climbing higher. Nerd uh, up uh, off 70% from its 52-week high. And the big question you guys have been talking about in the show, where should investors go shopping? Much of big tech like Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, they've dropped more than the broad market average. But like your guest was on just maybe about 20 minutes ago, Morningstar Research is arguing these names are still high growth stocks at valuations closer to value. Stock. So uh, definitely a pick over there. Nonetheless, here we are today at the NASDAQ, the seventh week of weekly declines, the longest losing streak in 21 years. Chris, Christina, thank you. It's perfect setup for our next guest who says that the current high interest rate environment isn't a negative for all growth stocks, pointing to small and mid-cap names as protection hedges. He's increased his positions in Block, Twilio, MongoDB during the sell-off. Joining us now is Jacob Asset, Management Chairman and CEO, Ryan Jacob. Uh, Ryan, it's great to have you with us today. I was reading your note, and am I reading this correctly? <laughs> you are seeing some of the best values in busted SPACs. Which ones? <laughs> well, well, first off, to your earlier point, um, you know, given the fact that we're 13, 14, 15 months into uh, this real tech bear market where a lot of those smaller speculative names and a lot of these SPACs were the ones that took a majority of the damage. And then only until November did it start to infect the rest of the market. And then really only in the last four or five weeks have we seen that kind of move up to the larger cap names. And in a lot of ways, if we are in a bottoming process, which we think we are, we'll look back in a lot of ways, this will be kind of a textbook kind of bear market the way it plays out. Uh, as for the SPACs, obviously, we saw a lot of companies come public last year that really had only not much more than a business plan. But uh, through that mix, uh, there were actually a few companies that we think are legitimate uh, long-term buys here. Okay, which ones are those, Ryan? And how do you determine which ones are from that SPAC wreckage? Uh, there's a handful, uh, two that stand out. Uh, probably the largest is Cvent. This was a company that we owned back in 2015-16, uh, was acquired, taken private by Vista. Uh, they came out in a SPAC format last year. Uh, you may ask, you know, for a company that's that mature, they lead the uh, event management space and technology. Um, they were hurt, obviously, during COVID. There weren't a lot of live events. 
Uh, they had to transition to a hybrid model for uh, the events that they were hosting, and then a virtual model. And, uh, and, and the results were so poor, they really didn't have that traditional IPL IPO route to go. They had to give these longer forecasts or allow during SPACs to show people as the economy went back to normal that their results you know, should benefit. And we're starting to see that already. Ryan, the, uh, the Elon Musk Twitter process has been confusing to a lot of people, but you've been uh, pretty nimble in, in managing it so far in this process. Talk about what your playbook's been. Well, Twitter's been a large position for us for a while. Uh, we've always felt that it's been underappreciated and undervalued uh, given their uh, global reach as a social media company. Obviously, they've been unsuccessful in uh, kind of figuring out exactly how to monetize the subscriber base well. And uh, so then when uh, Elon Musk made the investment, um, we thought that was uh, an interesting move. And then when we did think that there was a decent chance he would end up trying to acquire the company. And then once that happened, the stock went over $50. Um, you know, we basically felt the risk reward wasn't that positive, given there could be some bumps along the way. And, and quite frankly, also because we saw some, you know, looking as an opportunity to redeploy. I think now that the stock is back into the mid-30s, um, it's really, uh, at this point, the risk reward is, is skewing the other way. We still have a little Twitter position. We're actually considering adding to it. Uh, we do think the deal will eventually go through, even if it comes in at a smaller discount to the 5420. Right. But you're, you're not betting on a, a drawn out legal process. Uh, I, there could be. I mean, but we're talking months, not years. So, uh, you know, it's still, you know, this is going to be, in essence, an all cash deal. We would expect a fairly quick close once, um, you know, we get through some of these legal issues. Uh, you know, it's always a possibility. I think it's well more than discounted where the stock is today. I'm not sure the stock would fall a whole lot from current levels, maybe another 10 or 20 percent, even if Elon were to walk away. Mm-hmm. Ryan, when you look at some of the more beaten down speculative, smaller mid cap names, do you like them because you think that they might be able to get close to or reach previous peaks? Or do you think that they're attractive as M&A targets? Uh, Really both. When you look at the larger cap names and why we're focusing, and we have the lowest exposure in our history right now to large cap tech. Um, The big reason why small and medium cap tech looks interesting to us here is we do expect interest rates to rise. We've gone through this period of really, uh, you know, at least uh, 12 years of relentlessly lower interest rates, which has boosted all large cap tech and boosted multiples. They're the ones most at risk to seeing that compression. The small and mid cap type of names that we favor, they're growing 20, 30, 40 percent a year. Uh, They're not going to be as affected by interest rates. So I think when a lot of people look at uh, higher interest rates being bad for all growth stocks, longer and looking at it in terms of being longer dated assets, I I think they're missing the the vast difference between the large and mega cap part of the tech market and the small and mid cap space. Are you talking about profitable growth tech then, Ryan? Give us some names here. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, some of the names you mentioned we've been adding to, uh, you know, like a Square or a Twilio, uh, they're uh, probably more in the mid cap at this point. But, you know, valuations have come down tremendously here. And and these are companies that are extremely well positioned, continue to gain market share. These are next generation technologies that obviously got a boost during the COVID period, but are still even coming out of COVID, still able to put up 20, 30, 40 percent type growth. And, uh, you know, to expect to get these companies uh, at, you know, maybe they shouldn't be at 15 or 20 times revenue, 
but we would argue they shouldn't be at three or four times revenue either in the case of a Twilio. Ryan Jacob, thanks for being with us today. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Speaking of some buy calls on growth names, EMJ Capital's Eric Jackson telling the judge on overtime yesterday that we've reached a growth bottom and it's time to buy. He likes Twilio, along with Upstart, Farfetch, Open Door, and Carvana. JP Morgan this morning highlights Salesforce as, quote, too cheap to ignore, pointing to consistent revenue gains and upbeat free cash flow guidance as growth drivers. And City, like Snowflake, says you're getting a bit big discount at this level versus its other hyper growth peers. The street trying to parse who's going to be a winner here, D. I thought CRM was interesting at the open today. It was the best performing Dow component. And we're going to see how much of the IT enterprise stack gets compressed into fewer vendors. Certainly CRM would be seen as a survivor. It's a good point, although also, you know, I, we brought this up earlier in the week, is that as enterprise software, the next sort of shoe to drop now, we have all of these companies, especially in the startup space, pulling back on spending, on marketing, maybe software is next. So that is something to look out for. In terms of Snowflake, uh, Carl, it's interesting. We're going to talk about this later, but the gap in stock-based compensation um, to its valuation and its future earnings is something to consider for investors. We're going to look at that in the context of door Dash's latest move and a few other companies, what you need to be aware of. As we had to break, though, a reminder that this month CNBC celebrates Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage. Here's Destination Wealth Management's Michael Yoshikami. My heritage really has taught me how important it is uh, to really be focused on uh, results, to really be focused on trying to do the best I possibly can do every single day. And I think that that contributes greatly to the success I've had in the business world. There's a tremendous uh, population of investors that are looking for help, and, and they many times are looking for help um, from folks that can really understand their culture and their background. So I think there's tremendous opportunity for Asian Americans to continue to advance in the financial services world. Welcome back to Tech Check. If you've been watching the mega caps this week, you're probably wondering what has happened to Apple. The stock is on pace for its worst month since 2020. Now heading for eight straight weeks of declines. Our Apple reporter Steve Kovac has more on this really terrible week. Yeah, D. Apple's off almost 25% from those January highs when it was at that $3 trillion market cap. And the last two weeks alone, just brutal for Apple, down about 12%. Analysts still searching for the bottom, but remaining optimistic. Uh, Wedbush's Dan Ives had a note out this morning saying iPhone demand is holding up better than expected, despite those supply chain and COVID shutdowns in China that we've been hearing about. Uh, But good news for Apple, given what we heard about demand from retailers this week. Meanwhile, uh, reports yesterday about Apple's board got a demo of this new headset we've been hearing about for a while, and that's a sign that it's about to reveal it. Uh, This would be Apple's first major product since the Apple Watch over seven years ago. Apple has been working on this for the better part of a decade, and now we're going to finally see what this thing is. Um, Here's how we know it works based on all these reports. It's a mixed reality device, meaning it can do both augmented reality and virtual reality. It has these cameras on the outside that kind of pulls in the real world so you can see it on the screen in front of your face and then puts those digital images in the real world in front of you. And then you can kind of ramp it up to full virtual reality experiences. It's also said to be using a version of the M1 chip that's been powering Macs for the last couple of years, meaning it will work independently from the iPhone. 
And at first, it's likely going to be more about entertainment, gaming, and video. Think of it like an iPad on your face, content consumption, not creation or work. Um, and by the way, Apple declined to comment on these latest reports, but just me watching Apple for the last uh, dozen years or so, my best guess is we'll get a reveal of this thing uh, in the fall with the iPhone event and a launch in early 23. And by the way, we know there are going to be rivals coming soon. Uh, Facebook slash Meta has been te teasing a similar mixed reality headset that's going to launch this fall. Mark Zuckerberg actually just gave a demo of it a couple days ago. And we could have a new platform war brewing between Meta and Apple. Guys, back to you. It's going to be fascinating, Steve. You know, and as you point out, it's been so long since we've seen a new product category. Uh, it's they're always met with a ton of skepticism, right? About yeah. the watch or services, about the use case, or about uh, whether it's going to be large enough to move the needle. Yeah, and that's right. And if you remember when the watch launched seven years ago, every it tried to do too much. It tried to be like an iPhone on your wrist. And they learned right away that hey, this isn't going to work. We need to dial it back, make it more focused no more running apps on, on your wrist. And I can see that kind of happening with this. They might have to test it out in the wild a little bit before we really figure out what this thing's gonna do. And keep in mind, there's like, Carl, there's a longer term vision here to eventually replace the iPhone with glasses that look more like these Warby Parkers I'm wearing. We love those Warby Parkers, uh, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. you got Turning it. now to DoorDash, uh, the company approving the repurchase of up to $400 million worth of shares in a new filing, saying that they are looking to offset dilution stemming from their employee stock compensation program. This move comes as top tech names ramp up their stock grants for employees. That's according to protocol. Microsoft increasing the grants by 25% for select workers. Amazon looking to spend $6 billion on stock grants this quarter alone. Apple has also been giving six-figure retention grants to top engineers. Uh, Carl, so certainly a buyback helps with some of that dilution, helps to offset it. I thought this was so interesting because um, it never occurred to me that we might see a growth company, especially in the gig economy space, which traditionally has been so unprofitable, start to return money back to shareholders. It always raises the question, is this money well spent? The fact is, is that DoorDash has free cash flow, something that Uber, for example, has not had, though expects to have this year. They also have a sizable cash pile so they can do this. And it's not like they're trying to sort of get more. They are getting more market share, but they've been kind of so easily able to win that from the other players that this maybe puts them in a position to do this. Yeah, it's, it's such a delicate balance because on the one hand, this might be seen and certainly was seen as a welcome move earlier in the session. But at what point, D, does the market say, oh, what about the growth or at least what about the market share that you were trying to get from rivals? Yeah. And obviously in a market that's going to remain competitive and, and at some point relatively strong. Yeah. And, you know, there's other players out there to consolidate, right? You have Grubhub, you have Just Eat Takeaway that may sell off that stake. Um, but maybe and I, I have a feeling that Tony Shu doesn't think that is one worth buying. Um, so it is interesting. I was looking at some other companies in the space that could potentially do this. You got to look at an Airbnb, which had free cash flow of more than a billion dollars last quarter, not more than nine billion dollars in cash and cash equivalents. So is this something that could continue um, on that note, too? You always have to think of about stock-based compensation when you look at a stock's valuation, because just because it has come down, it's seen that compression, doesn't always mean that it's time to buy. Barron's pointing out some stocks this morning that are not as cheap as they look thanks to those high levels of stock-based compensation, which, as we've been talking about, do dilute shareholder value. The names that they identify include Lyft, cloud stocks like Snowflake, CrowdStrike, Zscaler, as well as e-commerce players, Shopify and PayPal. Carl. 
Uh, D, it has been a tough ride for Fang over the last month, as everybody knows. Check out Amazon, down almost twice as much as Apple and Netflix. While City takes its name off the focus list today, Kramer suggested maybe a bottom here. What does that mean relative to other retailers? We're going to break down the outlook when we return in a moment. It's a bike that costs about $2,000. Not only that, each month you pay a monthly subscription fee to ride your $2,000 bike. And best of all, it's stationary. And they charge you about $300 to set it up. So it's a $2,000 bike that you pay to use and pay to set up that doesn't go anywhere. What's a business like that? Gut check on Peloton today, courtesy of House Minority Leader McCarthy there, saying out loud what investors have been repeatedly asking themselves in the mirror lately. Stock once traded above 162, today 1410. Shares down about 85% in just the last year. S&P did hold this morning at 3860. Tech check is back in a moment. We are closing out the week with a look at Amazon and today's edition of Overvalued or Undervalued. On the bear side, RBC points out that despite naming the company as one of their favorites at the start of the year, Amazon stands out with the most outsized risk for the back half of 2022. And for good reason. Take a look at free cash flow yield over the last five years, trending in the completely opposite direction versus its mega cap peers as margins have been squeezed. Not quite the case for Microsoft or Alphabet, where obviously cash flow has remained strong. Not everyone, though, thinks this will be the case for long. Credit Suisse leading the bulls here, arguing that Amazon can return to historic levels of capacity by 24. And Citi does agree, despite taking it off their focus list for the near term, still calling it one of their top picks in the internet sector, D. Uh, it's going to be a real push and pull because there are things about Amazon that are unique, but to what degree are they dragged down by the forces that take down giants like Walmart, for example, and Target? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And, you know, Amazon has always invested all or most of its earnings back into the company. So if you think it can still innovate, create, then maybe it is undervalued. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq is down about 1% on pace for losses this week of about 4.5%. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing before we go. A lot has happened since Musk made his bid for Twitter. He recently said his purchase is on hold. But how did we even get here? Our great digital team put together a piece detailing the timeline. Here's a peek. Twitter, often referred to as society's de facto digital town square, can soon claim one of its most prolific users and vocal critics as its new outspoken owner, Elon Musk. Uh, welcome. I'm glad to see you too. The world's richest man has publicly flirted with tying the knot with Twitter as far back as 2017, and he started purchasing Twitter shares in January. So what led to the Tesla CEO brokering a roughly $44 billion buyout deal to snap up the social giant in just three weeks? Let's tear down the timeline and fill in the blank Twitter spaces. You can watch that entire piece um, on our show Twitter. Go follow us at CNBC Tech Check and the show page as well, cnbc.com slash tech check. Carl, this piece may be 10, 20 minutes by the time it's over. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. Have a good weekend, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 